When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Revelation chapter 6. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, welcome back to the King's Hall podcast. We are excited that you've joined us here. As always, I'm here with my friend Eric Kahn. Eric, say hi to the, to the, to the great people listening. What's up, my peoples? Dan Burkholder, my brother. Scalant. What did you say last time? <laughs> Scalant. Scalantia. Scalantia. By the way, my, oh. wife, my wife listened and she said, Scalantia technically means, I said cheers. It means uh, to health. To health. To health? Okay. To it's, health. It also does not sound it's Scottish. Like, it's like Gesundheit. I think it's Gaelic. It's Gaelic? Did oh, you man. say Oh, we're going to get a lot of emails from. Okay. You know what? You know what? This is already off to a great start, you guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, We are, in this episode, taking up a topic that really neatly ties into a lot of what we've already covered here. We've been talking in this season, as you already know, about building this great cathedral of Christendom, looking to uh, establishing the doctrinal and cultural distinctives that we believe uh, applied over time will result in the next Christendom. And so we've been clearing our job site where this cathedral needs to go up of all sorts of shanty towns and models that are in the way. Things like Big Fast and famous megachurchianity and all the other things we've covered, revivalism here. One of the through lines that cuts through quite a few of these shanty towns is the topic of today's episode. Actually, you'll find that one of the dominant theological through lines that runs through megachurchianity, modernly that runs through some of the fundamentalism that came out of the 20th century that runs through revivalism, particularly out of the 19th century, is a, an extraordinarily pessimistic view of eschatology, an extraordinarily es- uh, pessimistic view of eschatology, particularly uh, dispensational premillennialism is kind of the, the, the big theological category that you could put a lot of this under. And so, you know, later we'll make a distinctive that or a distinction that we're not talking about all premillennialists. We'll talk about, you know, how in a lot of ways it's actually easier. And we found it easy to link arms with dispensationalists as co-belligerents on lots of battlegrounds. And we want, if you're a premillennialist, we don't want you to turn this episode off and be like, well, here you go. We don't want to straw man you. But we do want to make this point that there is a particular kind of pessimism about the future and about the story of the church and where we where we stand in it today that has functioned to really hinder the growth and progress of the church that has caused us to actually jettison much of the theological legacy that we've gotten from our spiritual forefathers and that if consistently applied would actually make you look back at the last Christendom with extreme skepticism and say, that certainly couldn't have been an actually Christian thing, and definitely look forward to the future and without any expectation of there being a future Christendom. And so, if I may, just really quickly to frame this, give you a brief history, premillennialism from the early church to today, and then tie it into this uh, pessimism that we're rejecting, then we'll explain why and some of the implications of it. Premillennialism uh, is not the majority view in church history. In fact, there's not really, you could say, a particular dominant view through church history of eschatology. There's a reason why this didn't end up in any of the creeds or confessions as an explicit point, or any of the creeds, particularly in the early church. Premillennialism isn't a majority view in church history. There's no trace of premillennialism, for example, in Clement of Rome. Ignatius or Polycarp, not in the Apostles' Creed. 
And in fact, the Apostles' Creed seems to imply resurrection and life everlasting immediately follows the return of Christ to judge the quick and the dead, not after a thousand year period. But dispen- or not dispensationalism, premillennialism rose in popularity in the mid-second century, especially under the persecution of the church. And premillennialism is the idea that history is going to end, essentially, with the return of Christ to the earth physically, where he will establish a thousand-year kingdom, usually that's considered a literally thousand-year kingdom, where he'll rule physically from Jerusalem in Israel, uh, where people will still be dying, people will still be getting married and giving birth, Uh, People will still be getting saved in this period, but that during this period, post-return of Christ, there will be uh, essentially like a lot of what we're describing, a golden age, Christendom, you might say, where after the return of Christ, you see a lot of what we're describing. The nations come, most people are Christians, and then there's a final cataclysmic upheaval, rebellion, followed by the, the final judgment and the eternal state where death is killed forever. This view rose in popularity in the mid-2nd century, especially when the church was still heavily influenced by the Jewish faith. And, and, and this makes sense. I mean, the, the Jewish view of the coming of Messiah was much more in alignment with this, that the, the, the Christ would come, he'd rule physically from Jerusalem, and that, you know, most of the, the 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 dominant politics would come out of Jerusalem, but it would still be in this part of history. There would still be death and this sort of thing. This view faced stark opposition in the third and fourth centuries of the church, and particularly by Augustine, it was almost a dead idea, as far as we can tell in doing the work of historical theology. By the time we get to the Reformers, Calvin's treatment of premillennialism is fairly representative of most reformational treatments of this doctrine. He he basically said it's too puerile to deserve refutation. He he didn't even really deal with it because nobody held it and nobody had held it for something like 1,200 years at that time. It started to come back into the, the, the fringes of the Reformation stream of theology with a group called the Fifth Monarchy Men of the Puritans, which is a very small group, very, very small group. And finally, in the 1800s, we have a guy from the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. His name is Edward Irving. You've probably never heard of Edward Irving. He was influenced by the beginnings of something we've already talked about, the Second Great Awakening, combined with a restoration or with the restoration in England and the politics of England in the 1700s, uh, that this idea that things were going to get worse. And so he came up with this idea that there was a decline in the church that was impending, and it was marking the imminent return of Christ. And though he was pretty influential at this time, most folks haven't heard of him, and he probably would have ended up a pretty forgotten footnote in the history of the church, but for another man named John Nelson Darby. In the 1830s, John Nelson Darby became the father of what's now known as dispensationalism, and he came up with this system of reading the Bible reading prophecy, reading the relationship between the Old and New Testament, between Israel and the church. And he came up with this view that God had essentially governed history through these seven dispensations. There's a lot more work you could read here and and invented the doctrine of dispensationalism. Before John Nelson Darby, the idea of something like a pre-tribulational rapture, that the temple would be rebuilt, even ideas that Things like the Levites and the sacrifices would be reinstated in this thousand-year reign. Those weren't really around until the 1800s and didn't become popular, certainly, until John Nelson Darby. Why are we telling you all this? Well, we're telling you all this because one of the main features of this system 
that Darby invented and that became extremely dominant. We'll talk about this, the Schofield Bible later in the episode. One of the reasons that this matters is because a huge feature of this was an extraordinary degree of pessimism about the future of the church. They believed that the return of Christ was imminent. Any moment Christ was going to return, that there was going to be a massive rebellion and upheaval, the great tribulation was going to happen. And so some of the implications of this theological theological conviction led to things like a hesitance to build for the long haul, a hesitance to do the work of establishing schools and, and thinking in terms of a thousand generations and our children's children's children. Why? Well, because we didn't really expect for them to be around for this. When you start believing in a dispensational, I'm not even going to tackle the, the theology at the moment, just the worldview. You're a dispensational premillennialist. You know things are going to go from bad to worse. Every event that happens then, like you read the newspaper and something bad happens, you have confirmation bias. You say, of course it would happen. Of course it's getting worse. Of course we have World War I, and then we have World War II. The whole world is fighting. Atomic bombs are dropped. We find out there are concentration camps. What's happening in Russia with the Cold War? There's no lack of fodder to feed this idea of things you know, steadily declining over time. And so the question I have is, uh, Brian, maybe you could answer this. This idea of decline, is it actually true or is it a myth? Is it, is it a myth of decline? Yeah, it, it is one of the central threads that you have to deal with in, in situating yourself in history. I think that, to, to frame this, that my answer a little bit, you know, one of the issues with the church today is that most Christians don't really self-consciously stand in a historically rooted understanding of their place in history Things have changed more rapidly in the last 150 years for everybody than in the entire history of humanity combined before that in many ways, technologically. For, for much of history, you could say something like, I'm a farmer, like my father was, like his father was, like his father was, like his yeah. father was. I'm an Anglican, like my father was, like his father was. You like can even see like the, the tracing of last names. Yeah. You know, like Cooper, we were talking about, you made barrels. Tied your vocation. Yeah. Right. So, so that was how strongly situated people were in the historic stream. And in many ways, the technological advances of the post-industrial world have disrupted that to such a degree that humanity is essentially rootless right now. We don't really know where we come from. We don't know where we stand. And some of that has made us tremendously vulnerable. Bad readings of history to um, novel ideas without knowing that they're novel like radically new ideas without knowing that they're that they are new ideas that we're believing and just assuming like isn't this how everybody read when you, when you the Bible? say when you say reading history what what was that that, that Re- you said reading history they don't know how to read history where they stand in history uh-huh. the story of history and so they start to read history and I don't mean like read works of history I mean like think about the story of history the story of humanity over the last 2000 years or 4000 years in ways that they don't understand, they don't realize that they're reading this this book of history in a way that no, that is very new, and nobody really did. So one of these myths that I think is very prevalent today, partially because of our own modern experiences and rootlessness, and what I just said, is this myth of decline, particularly with respect to the Christian Church. That the Christian Church, the story of the Christian Church, is fundamentally a story of decline, and you might see this from through the lens of like even how. Tolkien describes 
the the race of men in Gondor. We kind of think of ourselves like that, where they had the Numenorians, who were these great lordly men who came from Numenor. They lived for hundreds of years. They were very masterly men. They they were you know very connected to the elves, who were immortals. And and then the story of Numenor is basically the story of decline until you get to the men of Gondor, who no longer live very long. They've mingled with lesser men, and they basically are are just like half breed, decrepit stock of much better forefathers. Well, we tend to think of ourselves like that. You hear this narrative often in the church that what we need is to return to the early church. We need to get back to the early church, to the purity and power of the early church. And a lot of that, they, they don't understand that the early church was infant and toddler phase of the church, that we've made good progress since then. The early church, the, the 40 years between the resurrection of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem, saw one of the greatest apostasies in the history of church, some of the greatest, in fact, nearly every great heresy finds its origin in that era of the church, uh, and they repeat, they, they come back in different guises and under different faces, Gnosticism, Judaizing, Stoicism, all sorts of Greek and Roman philosophies syncretizing with Christianity, Hebrew errors shrinking back to Jerusalem and the law. Th- these things come out through history. The early church was bat- battling them in, in massive ways. We saw huge apostasies. Paul writes, the, or, well, I said Paul, I just gave you my position. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews writes basically to protect this Hebrew church from shrinking back to Jerusalem, going back to the errors of Judaism and, uh, you know, re-embracing the temple. He's like, don't shrink back and be destroyed. Literally, God's going to nuke Jerusalem. Instead, press on, you know, press forward, stay in the church, don't go back. A lot of Christians today, when they think about where they are in the church, they think of themselves like the men of Gondor when Aragorn shows up in the Lord of the Rings. They think we're at the tail end of 2,000 years of decline. When the actual facts of history do not bear witness to that narrative. Yeah, and and we're not giving a deep theological scriptural treatment of why dispensationalism or even amillennialism not, is incorrect. Yeah. That's not the goal of the show. No. So so yeah, don't expect like a lot of biblical this isn't a bible study. We have other works. Yeah. Uh, Brian did a Sunday school class on this. On eschatology. That's that's really helpful. Uh Refuge Utah or Refuge what is our website? RefugeUtah.org. Yeah. And, and I, I do, in a moment, I want to return to some of the early roots of premillennialism and then the story of, of the eschatological development, the historical theology of eschatology, I think is important to this conversation. Maybe we could return to that in a moment. Yeah. But, but thinking about that narrative of decline versus progress, most Christians find it shocking to hear that the the story of the first four cent, uh, four centuries of the church was a story of massive conquest, massive conquest. I mean, there's a chart. This was published in Christianity Today, by the way. Like this isn't some like super post mill like insider baseball chart. In the year 100, we we estimating the population of Christianity again as a percentage of Rome. Rome's empire's population in the year 100. So the church has been established for about 70 years since, you know, Christ's crucifixion estimated that there's just under 10,000 Christians at some point, you know, around there, maybe 0.01% of the population of Rome is Christian by 150. Uh, we have tens of thousands of Christians. So 50 years later, which is still 0.07% of the population of Rome, less than 1% by 200, that has gone up by more than 5x, and we have a couple hundred thousand Christians. And this is now a whopping third of a percent of Rome is Christian. So that's the progress of the church for the first, I don't know, 150 years. 
By 250, we go up by what? What is this? Over 5x again. Over a million Christians now. Nearly 2% of the population. Massive so jump. You're, now you're talking about exponential growth. Exponential growth. So this growth, growth curve is crazy. By 300, it's 5x again, and there's more than 6 million Christians, which is now uh, 10% plus of the population of Rome. Now, this is the craziest jump, and some of you know the historical roots and a guy named Constantine and some of the things that happened in the next 50 years. By the time you hit the year 350 and beyond, now you've surpassed something like 30 plus million Christians and more than half of the Roman Empire professes Christ as Lord. And now, I'm not trying to read how many of those people were regenerate. You know, that I obviously it'd be difficult to get regeneration statistics. It's difficult enough in any modern church, <laughs> much much less historical. So, so 350 years, we see Rome go from 0.1%, one hundredth of 1% of the population within the first generation or two of the Christian church being founded to more than half of the population professing Christ as Lord. And, and, and guys, it continues. If you, follow the, if you follow the world Christian population against the world population chart for the last 2,000 years, even projected into the future, one of the charts I'm looking at right now, you see that this blue line on the chart I'm looking at goes up. It's the population of the Christian population. And then there's a green line that's the population of the world. And both of them go up exponentially until you get to the point where today, even more than 2 billion people profess to worship Christ as Lord. And so this this idea that Christianity has been a story of decline from its founding, where we had the purity and power of the early church that has declined like the Numenorians down to this time where we're just lesser sires uh, of lesser, you know, we're, we're lesser sons of greater sires, is a tremendously misleading reading of history. And it's not the way that Christians would have read history until at least the 19th century. This episode of the King's Hall podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Reformation Heritage Books. And this is a sponsor that we are very glad to partner with in this. Uh, And let me explain why we're so excited to partner with them. If you're going to see the new Christendom go up, you're going to need a lot of theologically robust resources that, that specifically come out of the great river of Reformed theology. And these guys have it. They've got great works that cover everything from really high theology to devotional literature, marriage and family, history and biography, and more. They, they have titles from Banner of Truth, PNR, all sorts of great resources. Uh, we believe that if you head to their website, heritagebooks.org, that you'll find something for just about everybody who's listening here, whether you're a theology nerd with a really well-stocked bookshelf or you're a mom just looking for uh, something to read to the kids during breaks on homeschooling. There's something for everybody here. Uh, our family has benefited tremendously from several of their works, and we'll talk about those in future episodes as well. Um, but we'd encourage you to head to heritagebooks.org, uh, scroll around, find something for yourself today. We're glad to partner with these guys, and we would want you to actually help support the show by supporting them. They've been really generous in helping us, and so uh, we'd encourage you to do that. Head to heritagebooks.org or see the link in the show notes and pick up a, a book for yourself or your family today. Can you imagine how incoherent it would be to a Christian in Central Europe in 1650 to go up and say, yeah, Christianity is basically a loser religion. Hardly anybody's Christian. No, everybody. They would have been like, actually, everybody Literally is Christian. Everyone, because we burn the atheists. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you, you can, and by the way, this is not just Europe. You can do this in Egypt. 
You could and, until Islam takes over yeah. radically in the last couple hundred years. Yeah, Asia Minor. Asia yeah. Minor. Today, yeah. Africa. I have another chart that traces percentage of of the world's Christians in each continent. Africa is going up tremendously. It's over fifty percent today, while other nations stagnate and decline. Even you see nations like Africa with lots of the world's population radically increasing. Asia, South America, and so this. The, the, I'm curious. I think it's an interesting question. Is that uh, it's just a question? Why, if you ask the American Christian? How are we doing? Most of them would be like, oh, well, yeah, any and, day now. And I think a lot of it is, so you have a couple factors. One is dispensationalism, but you also have things like communism. Yeah. So the the desire to undermine everything that the West is built on. You know, I was thinking of a book uh, that I read. Somebody had recommended. I read this maybe five or seven years ago. But it's called How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt. Mm, I've heard of this book. I haven't read it. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. But really what it goes through is like, what we don't give credit to is all the ways in which Christianity really did shape the world today that we just don't recognize. Right. So things like hospitals. Well, the hospitalers were a basically like a monastery type part of the church. That was our that was our thing. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. And they were like, Atheists. oh, well, we need to show charity. So long before there was a welfare state, the church was saying that's our responsibility. Yeah. You're welcome, pagans. That was our thing. Um, the, the treatment of women uh, drastically You're went, welcome, feminists. That was went our thing. up with Christianity. And so I think today we live in such an age where, you know, we're deconstructionist, which is a violation of the fifth commandment. We That's wanna, right. We want to tear down everything that our fathers built. I was reading Robert Bly on this subject, and he said deconstruction. This is early 90s. But Robert Bly said deconstruction is like taking the handmade guitars our great-great-grandfathers built for us and spent 50 years building and just smashing them against the wall. Or even worse, putting Justin Bieber stickers on them. <laughs> where's the where's the throw-up sound effect? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, what do I do? Yeah, I need to work on that one. So I think a lot of it is that's the zeitgeist of our culture is to hate our fathers. That's right. It's to hate everything that they built. We sort of have this notion that um, I was listening to a podcast and, and I'd love to find it if I could again, but but I, I was road tripping. I was listening to a podcast with Jordan Peterson and he's talking to a, a very elite Harvard scholar, right? And the guy said, well, look, Christianity has been bad for the world. It's been wicked. And Jordan said, well, let me just cut in here. He goes, you're flat wrong. Yeah, first of all. <laughs> and Jordan, at this time, was like an avowed atheist, but he was like, I, I, you can't look at the facts of history and say that Christianity has done more harm than good. It's, it's in fact, the yeah. opposite. And, and even now, like, you look at the world, the Western, Christianized, colonized world, were there evils? Yes. Yeah. And we don't support those evils. Of course not. On the whole, Christendom has been a marvelous thing for culture. Yeah. It's like, would you rather ask any feminist, would you rather live in a world that is dominated, in a culture that has been dominated for several centuries by Islam, by Hinduism, or by Christianity, or by secularism? Yeah, what is it like to live in Delhi right yeah, now? Yeah, guess, guess how women and children are doing in Delhi. Not guess, so good. Guess how it, the economy is doing in Delhi. Guess how women and children are doing in Saudi Arabia or in Iran. Yeah, but like the Native Americans in America, they were such peace loving. Oh yeah, would you like my people? You know, gitchy gitchy makade. Would you rather like? <laughs> would you like to live? I was trying to. That was a I'm softball. Sorry. For yeah, Brian. Sorry. I forgot the word for vision quest. Uh, but <laughs> in Ojibwe, but that's a great point. Like we have this, we or or Columbus coming to, uh, you know, or the Spanish conquistadors coming, and they they find these South American cultures that are dripping with blood. They're we're they're almost as bad as we are. The human sacrifice and, is like yeah. untold. Yeah, but, but but I think too the other thing I, I just want to interject is when you look at this. So the church is in retreat mode because we believe in this vision of decline. And so to summarize everything. To Dan's question, is there a myth of decline? Summarize everything we've said, and Brian said, the answer is yes. Yes. 
But then you look at it and you're like, okay, biggest problem. Why is the left? Why are the pagans winning? Because they believe in the infinite progress of evolutionary theory. They're, right. they're sitting there believing that the state will transform the world. Believing it, they go and they do. Yep. Christians are sitting on their hands saying, well, we lose anyway, so what does it matter? Yeah, look at look at the uh, transhumanist, liberal, postmillennialism, for lack of a better word, and dominion theology of someone like Elon Musk, who believes that we are going to successfully link human beings to technology such that we might even be able to achieve something akin to immortality. Oh, that we're, mark of the beast, chip in the head. Yeah. Continue. That we're going to become uh, an interplanetary species. This is his whole point of SpaceX. It's all about AI. Artificial intelligence plus Neuralink technology plus interplanetary humanity plus evolution equals an enlightened, basically a, a dominionist mentality of human history. So the liberals playing for keeps and they're not dispensate. They're not, uh, they don't have a myth of decline. Well, they really believe they're going to win. Even and the they LGBTQ alphabet. I mean, that such, they made such a small minority of the U.S. population, and they've been radically successful in pushing their agenda because yeah. they think they're going to win, and they are winning. Yeah, and a lot of this, I think, is is fundamental. So the you know dispensationalism is part of this, you know, Marxism, critical race theory, all of it. Um, but it all comes back to the practical issue of what do you do with your kids? So the left, for a long time, since the at least the 50s, said, we're going to make a, a long, slow march through the institutions, and we're just going to relentlessly teach these things. Meanwhile, I think as Christians, we were pretty much seeding the ground. There were some fights along the way. It would be, you know, we've been seeding the ground on it. Yeah. And so this is why I think in, in our day, there's actually been a revival of post-mill thought. Part of it, I do think, Dan, is because we see the way the left is going hard in the paint, we see that. But we also, and Brian, you mentioned this earlier, maybe we should talk about some of the historical roots Definitely. Everything, you know, everything in modern history, it comes back to like historical revisionism versus real history. Yeah. Uh, a, a great book on this is Ken Gentry. He uh, shall have dominion. And he he traces the historical roots in a couple points I would make. Number one, dispensationalists claim, you know, like many people, well, we're the true vision, you know, we're the true ideal from the beginning. And, you know, Gentry goes through and he's like, that's actually just a lie. That That's not true at all. And he, he no. cites resources and stuff like that. So that's really important. But the other thing historically I think is really important, we're huge on post-mill. We love it. However, even Gentry, who's making the case for post-mill theology, says there's a reason eschatology was never part of the creeds, because it was not something that, that the early church believed was essential to orthodoxy and therefore that we should divide over. I feel like that's an important thing to Brian's point of, hey, we can link arms with pre-mill, historic pre-mill guys, yeah. A-mill. Absolutely. And we can push the ball forward. That's Absolutely. that's great. Even if you're dispensationalist and you're like, look, I'm convinced my hermeneutic, a lot of this has to do with your your, hermene your hermeneutics. How do you read prophecy? How do you interpret scripture? And you say, look, I'm still convinced of the system of dispensationalism. And yet I believe in the moral imperative of Christians to behave as if postmillennialism is true. I, I've heard people say this. To that person, I would I would say, hey, let's, let's grab a beer and talk about your hermeneutic and let's talk about scriptures. Let's open some passages. But I would also want to say, yeah, brother, let's build together. Let's go. In our church, we have pre just for for the record, in our membership, and certainly in attendance, we have dispensational premillennialists, you know, probably more historic premillennialists who are some leaky disp dispies, probably like MacArthur. We've got amillennialists who are optimistic and pessimistic, and, and we've got postmillennialists who are of various stripes. So it's like we get along and we we build together. Yeah, and it's funny because I know that predominantly American Christians are dispensationalists. And yeah. so 
this is this is anecdotal, so take it for what it's worth. In my experience, it's been easier to link arms with you dispensationalists than it even has been to those that are essentially a subset of postmillennialism with all millennialists, and particular particularly those of a like a modern two kingdoms sort of over spiritualization of everything, all the Old Testament readings and, and, and everything that would say that post-millennialism is an over-realized eschatology and you're actually doing harm. Whereas, right. the, whereas the dispensationalist is like, hey, I, I'm not sure about where you guys are coming from. I think we're going to lose, but I, I mean, I want to fight with you guys. Yeah. Like I'm on your your side. And so even though those two theological viewpoints of the the end times seem to be polar opposites, in my experience, it has been easier to link arms with you dispensationalists than it has been to the all mill guys. So I would say all mill guys just be a little bit more friendly. Yeah. Right? A, cer- a certain stripe for sure. A yeah. certain stripe that has, like we've made some criticisms of uh, certain forms of radical two kingdom theory and things like that, that would relegate much of human life to the common kingdom. That's not governed or regulated by scripture in the same way. And so it's actually actively harmful. They would say to attempt to get Christians Christians and non-Christians, to obey Christ in these areas. And that, to me, is, I think, Dan, that's a great point. That's actually much harder to uh, link arms with than the dispensationalist who says, yeah, I think the Antichrist is going to show up any minute, but in the meantime, he's going to find, when I get raptured, I'm going to get raptured with with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And that guy, I go, amen, brother. Let's let's, <laughs> let's put build, some bricks in the wall. Fight, yeah. you know? Let's yeah. put some, and, and if your clothes drop to the floor and your rat, your trowel rattles on the on the stones, and I'm still standing there, then I'll start praying really hard and repenting because apparently, <laughs> apparently, apparently yeah, every at, every so '90s kids were at, at the risk nightmare. of being a flatterer to the Dispies, which is really strange. Wow, um, yeah. but there is a laudable characteristic that is that was a, a keynote or like a, a defining characteristic of dispensationalism. And that was a desire to read the scriptures literally saturated in the scriptures. And I think, I think it gets wrong, you know, the reading of prophecy and all of that. But I, I will say like, you know, it makes it a lot easier to partner with someone who takes the Bible very seriously. Even if I think that at the core, the way that they're reading the scriptures is not necessarily the most faithful to the text yeah. as, as an, as a whole. But I will say that, you know, I, I definitely respect that. But you can see, as I tie it back to the fundamentalist movement, during that same time period, the little literal reading, the high view of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, where you could see this took root. As far as like the myth of decline, you can see where this is really, where Christianity has really lost a lot of ground in the 19th century. And actually, some of the most horrible human atrocities of mass scale happened during that same time period. So which gave it a lot of a lot of footing, but in a in a way you could even say that it was amplified by the retreat of Christianity from things like schools. You know, um people have essentially relegated their children to being taught by by pagans and in, instructed by pagans because it's, you're going to lose anyway. You know, so maybe that's not a fair characteristic or criticism, but I I wanted to, you know, make a sandwich that where I complimented and then I you gave offered a critique and you ended with compliment. Yeah, and you, yeah, yeah, and, and I like you guys. There's yeah. the last. There's the last. So one. There's the last one. Winsome and nuanced. <laughs> I love that. One of the things that I wanted to say. This is just from a, a business perspective. One of the things that I've realized is there, there's people like if you're if you're a good business leader, if you have vision and resources and and you start building, people will come. Like 
you know, this is the old uh, field of dreams thing, like build it and they will come. Well, I'm kind of saying like, if you have vision and resources and listen, if God is the one doing the building, be about the work and people will flock to it. Because one of the things about this is we've gotten so hyper rationalistic in our culture where we're like, oh, everybody is operating on a very precise eschatological viewpoint. And the reality is they're not. When you see cultural momentum happening, it's magnetic and you want to be a part of it. And so I would just encourage people as leaders, just start building, just start praying, just start asking God to bless the building and people show up and come. And what you'll find is there's a lot of people on your team that you wouldn't have thought would have been on your team. That's right. There's guys that listen to this podcast, the Hard Men podcast. We'll talk about building culture and they're like, yes and amen. And then like, I'll come to find out like they're hardcore fundy Baptist Dispies. And I'm like, you know what? Praise God. They want to build. They're excited about the building. Let's do it. Yeah, that's right. I think there's a theological eggheadery that can be, that can go on and operate, particularly in those who are influential in the church pastor types. Yeah. Because pastor types tend to be passionate about theology and theological precision. And so they can actually come to believe they get enough theological precision, everything will follow. And that's not actually the case. In fact, you can have all prophetic powers and have all knowledge, but if you have not love, it's worthless. So right there in principle, knowledge is not enough. Theological precision is not enough. You actually have to win people to a holistic, totalizing view of humanity and demonstrate that to them, and then they'll come. And a lot of times what we've seen is that rather than trying to lead them by convincing their mind first— exact theological positions, and obviously correct error, heresy, that sort of thing. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about intramural debates. If you just say, whatever your eschatology, can we agree that our goal is to make disciples of the nations and teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded? Now, let's put aside the question of how successful we expect to be. It's like, let's put aside the question of how successful we think we're going to be in cleaning the room. Do we all agree that mom told us to clean our room? Okay, yes. Well, why don't we start putting the toys away? It's a really terrible analogy. That was, But you know what I mean? You know <laughs> what I mean? Get to work. Get to work. You know, and what will happen, I think, is that you start to see the, the sometimes the theological understanding follows, follows the hands and follows the feet instead of the other way around. Yeah, so maybe you guys could kind of paint a little bit of a picture. I don't want to overstep the the subject matter of the of the podcast, but what changes when you have an optimistic theology? What does the landscape look like? So then we can kind of back up then and say, why is this pessimistic view actually harmful? Yeah, I think it's given me a different view. Number one of things like education for children, but thinking about education in terms of like a legacy project. Because really, when you think about it, I, I had, you know, very like I was like 18. It wasn't helpful. I was reading like Kant and Nietzsche. And I was like, man, this like this is really depressing. And, you know, this is pre-Christian. Why so, am I sad all the time? Yeah, why am I sad all the time? <laughs> like you kind of have this like suicidal nihilism and, yeah. and you start looking at things and you're like, well, I'm really not actually going to live very long. And what could actually be accomplished in my lifetime? Well, actually, not very much. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about that. But then like adjacent to it. I saw these guys in Christendom, people like Doug Wilson, who were like, they see the same realities, but they're building fearlessly. And the culture that came out of their camp was like joy, right? They're not like stodgy, angry, grumpy people. Like, you know, you you, you read like the Vice article about Doug Wilson, and you're like, man, he must just be like a human piece of trash. A rage monster. Yeah, like yeah. angry all the time. And then you meet Doug, and you're like, why is this guy so jovial? Like, Grandpa? It, and <laughs> Why is he so happy? Yeah. And also behind closed doors, you meet people that, because there's like a... You see, uh, uh, Mark Driscoll's an example yeah. of someone who on stage is very funny and magnetic and, you know, sometimes very angry looking, but behind closed doors, testimony of men who served with him was a lot of the time he was a rage monster. Yeah. It was my way or the highway, instant rage, do what I say. Doug's not like that. You know, yeah, people which who is- serve with him are like, no, he's, he's jovial. He chuckles a lot. 
humble guy. Yeah, that's a, actually a pretty common trait with, you see it in the business world, but with, with visionaries, yeah. um, they're typically pretty controlling, a lot of times not well organized. And so when that guy finds his way into a church, like Mark, yeah, you're going to yeah. get that. So I think that was a big part of it, connecting like children, rearing, legacy, um, having actually a hope that goes beyond uh, just my lifetime. Because I think one of the things you have to face with all of this eschatology is how do you how do you fulfill if you believe in the Abrahamic promise, which is going through Christ to this day to a thousand generations? Dan prays for that. Uh, you know, every time we eat, we pray for our children to a thousand generations. But if you believe that, like, who's guiding history? Who's yeah. working this thing out? Well, my hopes in God. It's not ultimately in me. So then that starts being. I mean, that just totally grounds you in a different way in the way that you would educate your children. Yeah. It's like if you really believe that the Great Commission will be successful. Yeah. And, and the Great Commission has two basic parts, conversion and, and baptizing, this entrance into the church, and uh, discipleship, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded to the nations. It, when you believe that that will be successful and that the nations will stream to Mount Zion for instruction in God's law, Isaiah 2, when you believe that, when you believe Psalm 22, 27, and 28, that all the families of the earth will turn to the Lord, when you believe... Psalm 2, that as for me, I have set my king on the throne, and, and he will ask for the nations as his heritage, and I will give them to him. When you believe that, then you actually have to believe that, you, or you actually have to have something to say about every aspect of human life. Because if you really believe that all of that is going to happen in history— and you believe that that's the case, then you also have to believe that, well, we're going to have to disciple all these people to figure out things like politics, economics, arts, music, agriculture, city planning, because we're going to have a lot of Christians and they're going to have to know what to do about all these different areas of life. And so it really does change your mindset from a fundamentally uh, dispensational mindset. Essentially, what we're trying to do is convince people to get on the helicopter that's leaving the roof of of in Saigon in Vietnam, not Saigon in Vietnam. You know the, the last helicopter out before the Viet Cong stormed the compound. Like, get on the helicopter, get on the helicopter, get on the helicopter. No one's really worried about education that much. You're not like you know. You should really have a theory. You should really have a a, a philosophy and theology of of the education of children. They're like the Viet Cong are coming. Get on the helicopter. And so you're going to be obsessed with evangelism only. You're going to be extremely imbalanced in that. And you're not going to be thinking as much about covenant succession in the normative means of families, tribes, nations, instruction. You know, you actually have to have something to say. Yeah, and I think uh, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Um, so his dad, mom and dad were missionaries in China. And he, so he grew up in that, in that world. Him and his brother, I said, well, what was your childhood like? And he said, literally, my brother and I were doing lines of cocaine on the table and we're fornicating, we're doing all this, and, and my parents are missionaries to China. You know, I asked him, you know, what was that environment like? And he said, well, you know, my parents were godly, devout people, but their focus was clearly outside of the home. And so a lot of times, like, these missionary kids would be left in the States to, like, be raised by somebody else. Yeah. So I think that's one element of it, because if you think, hey, the helicopters are coming, we need to get everybody we can to the top of the building, you're not thinking long-term about your yeah. children. I've gotten them to pray the sinner's prayer, and they've been baptized, and yeah. so they're good. I'm going to move on. Their eternity is secure. That yeah, there's the rest of this life that they're going to. But you know, once saved, always saved. So they're fine. We got to get people on the helicopter. Yeah, yeah and absolutely. I mean, the the one thing you'll never get out of a culture like that is culture. Well, you get a culture, but it's, it's not a shallow. self-replicating. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, robust culture. Durable. It's yeah, a culture it, that's it one generation. Fizzes. 
It fizzes. Uh, it gets one. And then it's gone. Because yeah. those children are vulnerable to the discipleship of somebody with a radical, long-term, post-millennial type view, which is right now currently ascendant secular humanists. Yeah, and there, there definitely are periods like that. You can think of people who are like, you know, bent on surviving the Holocaust. And, and so you're in survival mode. Yeah. And, and you find your way out. Well, it's like the whole point of survival is so that you can go and build a culture once you've gotten out of that situation. Um, this is something like Jordan Peterson has talked about. He said one of the one of the problems with evolutionary theory is we're looking at humans in a survival situation as that's the best of humanity. And in really a survival situation, like that's kind of like humanity at its worst. Yeah. That's where you see the worst parts of people. So, yeah. and again, I would say this is the beauty of Western Christendom. Like we've built a culture where you have, in the Greek sense, leisure, you know? Yeah. You, you have time to do art and be creative and think about the music. The flowering of humanity. Yeah. If if literally like you're, all our pastors are being put in jail and we're being shot in the streets, we're, yeah. we're probably less concerned with psalm writing. Right. Or have time for it. Or oil painting. Yes. Yeah. Or cathedral building. Right? So, so Dan, you ask what changes in your worldview. Yeah. Would an optimistic versus pessimistic eschatology produce? And I think one of the things that we're circling around here a lot uh, that's that's essential to this is that if you actually have an optimistic eschatology, you will believe in the normativity of progress through covenant succession in families, tribes, and nations. And I'll explain what I mean, and then I want you guys thought to see is this true or not. So when I say covenant succession, I mean that it that one of the means through which God has appointed for the covenant to continue being handed on is not just evangelism, but it's also very blue collar normal things like having children, raising them to be Christians, teaching them how to be humans in all aspects of life, the paideia, newthesia of the Lord, to use Paul's terminology in Ephesians 6, and that you actually expect for that to work. Like you have kids with the expectation. God intends to say this because he said he loves to show his faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love him. He said, raise a child up in the way you should go, and then when they're old, they won't depart from it. And even though that's a proverb and we want to qualify it to death until it actually means raise your child up in the way that he should go, and eh, there's a good chance, flip, you know, flip a coin. That's not what it means, right? If that passage means anything, it doesn't mean that. So when you have an optimistic eschatology, one of the things that follows is that you you don't necessarily just have this glorious view of charging the gate as like this battle mentality. You also come with a plodding, God-working-through-normative, boring means over long periods of time through ordinary things like the family, tribes, nations, culture, politics, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I've heard this argument from atheists, and maybe you guys have heard this before. It's like you wouldn't be a Christian if you weren't born a Christian, if you weren't born into this house or into America. And a lot of times you have the heads, you know, like, oh, I'm on a back pedal. Oh man, that guy got caught out. No, the answer is yes. Yeah, God meant it. Yeah, if I was born in the Middle East to an Islamic family, I would not be Christian. And God has blessed me in that. Yeah, it's like saying uh, you would not be a fruitful apple tree branch on this apple tree if it wasn't for for the stump, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, for you the seed, yeah. the roots, and I mean, yeah, the yeah. apple tree that was planted there. When the apple tree fell down from the tree and the seeds went into the ground, it grew another apple tree. Yeah. And it's but like, I, I, I do think that's one of the problems um, in a lot of the dispy type, that type of uh, we've called it loser eschatology. And uh, but it, it's one of the problems. Ouch is right. If you have to start over every generation, and you don't genuinely believe that God is actually going to do something through your children. It makes the work like monumentally harder than I think it needs to be in, in, in what scripture commends to us. So one quote I was thinking of uh, was Herman Bavink, and he said, the covenant of grace does not randomly jump to and from one individual to the next. 
but is maintained through families, generations, yeah. and nations in an organic fashion. Yes, that's, that's exactly what, what I'm talking about. Ta- yes. Well, yes Bob Inc. said it. He said it better. I didn't even know Bob Inc. had said it. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Me and Bob Inc., we're on the same wavelength. So let's compare that. I, I, I have another one from Hal Lindsey here. Okay, I'm ready. So I'm he, ready to. I'm ready for the pain, Eric. So this is I'm like ready to get hurt again. The anti Bob Inc. But he says we should be living, Dan. We should be living like persons who don't expect to be around much longer. And my question to that quote is: I actually think that's how most Christians live. Did he have advanced like diabetes or something? I don't know. Does he have heart disease? I don't know. With rough living in my diet, it might be true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny he meant to universalize that principle. Everybody should be living this way. All Christians. Yeah, I want to contrast it with with what I think has been really helpful for me with having an optimistic eschatology because I think it's right. Not I think it's true, first of all. Right. That being said, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Mm-hmm. One. And it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Come and sit at my right hand until I make the nations your footstool. Mm, your Put enemies. all of your enemies under your feet. That's what yeah. it is. That is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament by the New Testament writers. By far. By far. And and so that being said, uh, along with in Daniel, is it chapter two uh, with the Nebuchadnezzar, his, no, it's not chapter two. Is it chapter six with Nebuchadnezzar and his dream and the statue and the small stone that was thrown at it and it blew the statue up? And yeah, I can't remember yeah. the passage, but- You're good. In, Keep, anyway, we know what you mean. Anyway, there, there are many, many passages that- essentially give the inevitable slow victory of Christ over the whole earth. Even uh, in Zechariah, I, I read this in, in church on Sunday, this last Sunday, and it's talking about Christ coming in to Jerusalem on a donkey. It's the prophecy that he's f- fulfilled in this on Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. And part of it says, keep going, keep going. He, uh, he shall rule mm. and his rule shall be from sea to sea. From the river to the ends of the earth. Mm. Quoting Psalm 72 right there. So, yep. I, I mean, so so then application, right? So if these things are true, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, putting all enemies under his feet. He will have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You know what that means for me? Is that I look at the enemies that are coming against God and his anointed one, like Psalm 2, yeah. and he laughs. He holds them in derision. Do I worry? Do I worry about that? No, I look at my children and I'm like, these are my. This is my first responsibility. They're the closest to me. I have to make sure that I'm faithful and diligent in my discipleship and yeah. training, instruction, uh, and discipline of my children. That's what I want to make sure of. But these other things, they can come against God. He is seated on the throne. Yeah, he is the the King of the cosmos, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. All of these things are futile. I love that you brought up Constantine earlier in the show, because that's one of my favorite stories. You have this massive turning in the world where you have people that suffered persecution just 15 years earlier. They're sitting in an ecumenical council in Rome with Constantine trying to figure out what is true and what is heresy, what is orthodoxy. And the saints, the bishops there had scars from being persecuted. It would be like if 15 years from now, the president of the United States of America radically converted to Christianity and called a council and said, American Christians, we got to figure some of these things out. And he sat in a council and called a bunch of theologians and they all got together and they started correcting the errors of the church. 
Er, yeah. Errors the the culture of the world and 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 the politics and that's literally what happened in human history. God appointed for that to happen. Yeah, it, it's absolutely insane. And and so it, and this is the way that God works, right? He stacks the cards against him, and then he has this like overwhelming victory through yeah. crazy means, like weak men that have small churches in rural towns. I mean, it's it's yeah. it is wild. So so having an uh, an optimistic view of the end times of where we are going, even if I mean. I'm under no delusions that the president is going to bend the knee to Christ, you know, anytime soon. We're going to achieve world peace in my lifetime. Yeah. But I know that we're winning. It, we are going to win. It, it, what you're saying, what you're saying then, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, it, it does. Like what you're saying is that if you have an optimistic eschatology, basically you will go from reading the story of history as the story of the apparent defeat of God and his people followed by the snatching of victory from the jaws of defeat at the very last second. And you will instead read history as the story of God's unfolding conquest, God's unfolding, inevitable, inexorable, where it does go. I mean, some moments it seems like everything's going to fail and there's a decline, but then there's a, you know, God, there's a, some you catastrophic moment or some historical turn where things go back and God continues to expand his kingdom. And that things like Daniel, when you talk about the stone that was cut out by no human hands, comes and strikes the feet of of empire, the statue that represents empires, and that stone becomes a mountain that covers the earth. Like you actually believe that the striking of the stone was Christ's crucifixion, coming crucifixion, yeah. resurrection, ascension, and that subsequently the story of history is the is the expansion of this mountain rather than the stone continuing to be a pebble until at the very last second, the whole mountain comes down. Right, right? exactly. And it, Two different readings. If you back out from Christian, like being a Christian for a moment, yeah. and just examine it as a as an, a movement, as an ideology, okay, yeah. and you look at it in history. So it's it's been left alone in the Middle Ages. It's been left alone, and what do you see? You see cathedrals being built, human flourishing, art, music. You see Christianity just blossoming, mm-hmm. right? For hundreds and yeah. hundreds of years. The okay? dark ages. I'm yeah. sorry. They were oh. the bright ages. Yeah. They just, were. just, we could talk about that in another episode, maybe, but like yeah. total myth, another yeah. myth. And so you see when the church is left alone, it flourishes, it explodes. And then when the church is persecuted, when say like the, like I, I read last in the last cold opening about Latimer and Ridley, right? You have the persecution of the saints and there's their blood is spilled. What happens to the church? It flourishes, it explodes, it grows. That's what's happening right now in our day in the Middle East and in Africa and in Asia is that the persecuted saints, the church is growing. And so just examining it from the outside, you look at, at Christianity and it grows no matter what you do. Yeah. No, it's inevitable. And why? Because the Lord is seated at the Lord's right hand, putting all of his enemies under his feet. That is why. That is why I, I'm convinced. Yeah, it's kind of, I was going to say, it's kind of ironic. You were mentioning like Africa is a good example. So the Methodist Church in America votes to accept pretty much full blown homosexuality. And then the Africans are like, Mista? Mista? Should I call you Mista? Bishop? Should I call you Bishop? I mean, literally, the Africans were the ones that saved the whole denomination because they, now here's the deal Americans, American Christians spent so much time and money over the last 40 years discipling Africa. Now they're like <laughs> based in Christian. They're they're Christ pilled. Uh, we are saying no to homosexuality. Even animals don't do it. Why should we be forced to do it? If we would have just done that with our own kids, uh, it would have been a totally right. different story. I remember same thing. Obama went to Kenya. 
uh, when he was president, he's speaking to like their prime minister or whatever. He's like, you know, you're very intolerant. You need to accept homosexuality. And he said, let me cut you off. We don't do that here. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Mista? What? Yeah. And that is all because, you know, faithful Christian witness. The, the other thing I wanted to say real quick, we were talking about practical implications. So one of the things that I noticed pastorally, uh, studying and preaching the Psalms over the years, we have these amazing Bible commentators, Willem Van Gemmeren is one of them, um, all these great guys, Derek Kidner, where I noticed post-mill running into, or you know, this, this whole eschatology running into problems with the Psalms. Even solid Reformed guys, when they get to the imprecatory Psalms, they're kind of like, yeah, that was their prayer, but uh, I don't. That probably that was should. for the an older dispensation. Yeah, let's not. Let's just. I mean, there's a real discomfort. Whereas what I noticed with the post mill guys, they're like, pray it. That God gave us that psalm. We need that one pray particularly. It. You know, pray for them all. such a time as this. Pray them all. Pray them wholeheartedly without all these like You're weird gymnastics. Right. Here, here's the thing, too. I'm, I'm just going to, this is going to be a super smooth transition. You mentioned the Psalms. Dan talked about Psalm 110. I want to talk, talk about Psalm 2 a little bit more because I want to talk about my music. No, I'm no just actually, no. I, there is a great setting of Psalm 2 that has recently been put <laughs> out. It? It's, it's uh, Why Do the Heathen Nations Vainly Rage by Douglas Wilson. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Psalm 2. One of the things that, that modern Christians tend to miss is that the New Testament, like, here's a question. Imagine that you had a divinely inspired and inerrant commentary on the Old Testament. Wouldn't That'd that be, be helpful? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that'd I mean, be helpful. Tell me more. Guess what you do. <laughs> Guess what you do. <laughs> it's called the New Testament. Well, and, and I, I just want to interject yeah, go one, ahead, thing, one thing and then continue because you got me all excited. So one of the things I was reading, uh, uh, James Hamilton. Oh, yeah. God's uh, glory and salvation through judgment. Commentary on Psalm 137 <laughs> in Precatory. But so he points out at the end of the psalm, you've got the prayer for the, the Hebrew word is shattered that the infants of the enemy would be shattered. Yeah. And they said there's only one other place in all the in all the scripture where the word for shattered appears. Guess where? Psalm 2. Ooh. So James makes a great point. He says Psalm 137 is the prayer that Psalm 2 would be fulfilled. Exactly. And James Hamilton also has great work that the Proverbs are uh, Solomon's obeying Deuteronomy 6. Yes. Right. James Hamilton also has great work on the biblical theology of the transposition or the 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 reversal of the curse where the woman's desire in Genesis three part of the curse is that her desire would be for her husband is the literal Hebrew word. And in the ESV translated said like over or against, like her desire will be to rule over her husband. Because it's the same word in Genesis four that uh, God uses to describe the sin of Sin is crouching at the door. Cain, its desire is to rule over you. Its desire is for you. What well, else do you find? In, any Eric, do you find anything else interesting that's not relevant to our topic? No, in, this in, is relevant. In, in Song of relevant. Solomon, then, uh-huh. the bride's love for the Davidic king, for the Solomonic Davidic king, is her. That she, it's, it uses the same word for. It says her desire is for him. But now it's been restored in Christ. And so the woman's desire to rule over her husband becomes through the resurrection and through the work of Christ, it becomes actually now properly for her husband in love. And so instead of desiring to be autonomous and rule over him, she desires to actually have him as her Lord and her husband. Mm. And so it's just glorious, like all these threads. Now I'm going to connect this perfectly so that Dan will see the connection that's actually... It Blow really, my mind. It you really help was. Dan out here. My, yeah, I, I'm dim-witted. Back to, Psalm, back to Psalm 2. Allegedly. So <laughs> we have a divinely... <laughs> We have a divinely inspired, inerrant commentary of the New Testament on the Old. And one of the places where I really saw the last 
vestiges of my opposition to postmillennialism fall was in seeing this in the way that the New Testament authors interpret Psalm 2. Mm. Because in, in ranging from the book of Acts to the book of Hebrews to the book of Revelation, we have quotations of at least 60% of Psalm 2 directly in allusions as well that give us basically an interpretation of what that psalm is saying. In the first part of Psalm 2, we, we see the psalm open with uh, the nation say, you know, that they're going to cast off their cords and his restraint from them and basically do their own thing. New Testament authors in Acts 4 quote that, and they say, this is exactly what happened when Pontius Pilate, the Jews, conspired together against Christ. There we have the nations, the Gentiles and the Jewish people, conspiring against Christ, Acts 4, 25 to 28. Then in Acts 2, 36, we see that the next part of the Psalms actually referenced that, uh, as for me, I've set my king on Zion's hill, Okay, who is that? Christ. Christ is anointed the king, according to Acts 2.36. It uses the psalm there to, to, to establish that. And then finally, Acts 13 and Hebrews 1.5 tells us that when it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, a lot of Christians think, oh yeah, that's obviously about Jesus. It's about the, the incarnation, like I've begotten the son. No, 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 no. That's not what it's about. It is about the resurrection. Acts 13.33, go read it. Hebrews 1.5. The New Testament author's uh, in, it show us that that verse is actually referring to the begetting of Christ from the dead, the resurrection. And the reason this all matters is because when you understand what happens next in the psalm, you see something glorious. Because the very next thing that happens in the psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Oh, but they're part of the common kingdom. Somebody reminded me <laughs> oh, of that. Dang it. No, it's glorious because what that psalm teaches us is that though the nations conspired against the anointed king who's seated on Zion's hill— Though they even crushed him and crucified him, the father begot him from the dead and told him, ask me this question, son. Ask for the nations for your inheritance, and I'll give it to you. So therefore, this is the message for the ongoing portion of history we're in today. It's kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish along the way. Why? Because he's seated, and Psalm 110 is true, and his enemies are being made a footstool. Whether those enemies are made a footstool by their conversion or their destruction is up to them. So his desire will be for the woman? <laughs> Dang it. He brought it back. <laughs> he showed the, the paucity of my connection. No, I, I guess all I was saying is that the Bible is glorious when you read it the way that the apostles read the Bible. Mm-hmm. That was a tapestry, Dan. It was a it tapestry. Was, I was lost in it. See my Quite threads. literally <laughs> it lost. It was so glorious. No, 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 no. No, it was Follow glorious. my threads, Dan. Yeah, so so the, uh, the, the main idea is the imprecatory Psalms. Which and I brought the inevitable up, by the way. victory of Christ. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, you did bring that up. <laughs> yeah, like just ten minutes ago, probably. Specifically, no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. That was specifically. Great. <laughs> it is that if you read the Psalms, especially through the lens of the apostles' interpretation of them, you will come to the conclusion that Christ is ruling, and the nations are being made His inheritance. So not in the millennium. Well, yes, in the millennium. Oh, but not like after the tribulation. In the millennium. Well, yes, after the tribulation. Oh, but at like the seven-year uh, pre. Are you pre-trib? All <laughs> mid-trib, post. What I'm saying, Dan, is that there was a great tribulation, uh-huh. uh, as Christ said there would be within one generation that would come upon 80, Israel, 8070, and that from then, as Christ was seated, the sign of the Son of Man seated in the heavens, as Christ says in Matthew 24, that from that moment on, the millennium has been established, Christ has been ruling, and what we're seeing now is the subsequent expansion of the kingdom of God through normal covenant succession and through the great sweeps of history, as God 
God writes this story. He's conquering. So if there was one main area, because I'm sure that we've upset some of our listeners and we want you to know that we're for you, changing your mind. Um, if you were to push them on a point, to give them like some fodder, like this is this is one area where I think you should look at in your eschatology, pessimistic eschatology. Obviously, we would love for everybody to be post mill because we think it's right. I mean, wouldn't you want everybody to be convinced for your position if you thought it was the right one? If you think it's right, you want everybody to think. Yeah, that. right. So, of course. so if there's something that I don't know, you could leave them with that would be convincing as like this is one area where I think you should definitely push your challenge your own theology to think about it that might change your mind at least to to be more open to the idea that these guys on the King's Hall podcast actually know yeah. what they're talking about as far as like Christ swallowing up the whole world in his kingdom where would that be well mine I would say for sure is read David Chilton Paradise Restored Yes, definitely. Read so that. Yep. I was, and let me just preface where where I've come from. Like I went yeah. to the Southern Baptist Seminary. Um, you had a mix of guys who were historic pre mill and a mill. I thought I remember reading some stuff about post mill and thinking no. And I heard Doug Wilson was post mill, and I was like, okay, whatever. And and then <laughs> I read David Chilton, and it's one of the most convincing, moving arguments. Oh yeah. I mean, because you know, like many other things that have changed my position. I'm looking at it and I'm saying, I, I don't care what your view is. I want to know what the Bible says. Right. And Chilton just walks you through it in such a way that is like, this is what scripture teaches. That's That was my conviction. I have a, I have a funny story about this that I'll tell that makes me look bad and Dan look good, which is, you know, honestly. I w oh, I wasn't going to bring up that story. I thought you were talking about a different one, but yeah. Oh, I'm going to bring this story up, Dan, because yeah. you yeah. deserve it. You deserve it. Uh, so Dan read that book first. Dan read it before me. And I was amillennial at that point. I had been dispensationalist. I actually had um, serious, this is the thing, God God uses crazy things. I had, God brought me to repentance in my teen years and to a, a, a renewal of my you know faith through the left behind books. I'm not wow, even that's, kidding. That's wild. I got to the last book, which is Glorious Appearing, and it was the scene of, in heaven, and it was so deeply moving to me. It was like, I believe this is, I believe that Christ is going to win. I believe he's going to, it's funny that I say that from that book, but that was like, it was, so I was really dispy. I went to a dispy college, Bible college. I even taught a class on it at, at Bible college once and um, dispy to the core. Then read some Sam Storms, became a millennial or has actually read some James Hamilton, uh, dropped the dispy part, became historic pre-mill, then was convinced of amillennialism slash post-millennialism of some sort by Sam Storms and his article particularly that was like things you must believe to be premillennialists of any type, which you should check out. And then I became post-millennial. But between the amill and post-mill, Dan got there first and he was reading the Chilton book. And, and I remember he came in, he was like, this is wild. Chilton is explaining how to understand Isaiah. And, and it, this is, this is, and I won't get into the details, but basically I heard what he said and I was like, that sounds like a heresy, Dan. I think you're totally wrong. That's crazy. He called me a heretic. I was like, I think you'd be a heretic if you believed that. And then I read the book and I was like, Dan, I'm so sorry. This is actually absolutely correct. And it's not heretical at all. And uh, please forgive me. This is why Dan, by the way, by one of our reviewers, got reviewed as the number one host number one of host. this show. I was third. What the heck? Yeah, you. And, but here's the problem. You're first in my heart. Oh, you. the problem. <laughs> I was in the middle, and whether you go by the world standard where Dan is first, or Jesus standard where the first shall be last, so you were actually first oh, by that. I'm in the middle first. either way. The yeah, number two spot still stays the number so two. First loser. So I was sad. <laughs> I would you're not I, first. You're last. <laughs> I would 100 second Chilton, and to me, the the, the 
adding to it, and this would come through Chiltern and reading Gentry and some of these other guys, is that I think if you start singing the Psalms and being serious about being in the Psalms and wait 10 years, you'll find that your expectations are so shaped by them that you would have a hard time explaining the the the, the simple expectations of the Psalms away either through over-spiritualizing or pushing them into a millennium after Christ comes back. Well, And that's kind of what I was saying. Like, the plain reading of the Psalms yeah. is an expectation of, like, the post-mill dominionist hope. Yeah, I think what what an optimistic eschatology, post-millennialism, allows you to have, particularly a covenantal, reformed, post-millennial that's deeply rooted in the reformed tradition and the reformed faith allows you to do not just post-millennialism, but all of that is to read the scriptures without falling into the ditch of either wooden literalism that that reads the the scriptures the way a six-year-old would read love poetry. They just don't get the metaphor. They don't get the prophecy. They don't understand yeah. it. God is says that a, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah. But what about the thousandth and first hill? No, he only owns them to own the that thousand. One. That one, yeah. that, then belongs Nobody reads to, it that way. I think it's uh, Monsanto after that. But he doesn't own the sheep, just the cattle. Just the well, cattle. actually, it's Bill Gates at this point. Bill Gates, yeah, that's he's, right. He's buying everything. And at the same time, though, I think that you also get protection from the other ditch, which is a radically over-spiritualizing of the text, that some flavors of, in my opinion, again, love you, millennial brothers, I think some amillennialist hermeneutics come to passages in the Psalms, like Psalm 22, that all the families of the earth will turn and worship the Lord, and like he'll have dominion from sea to sea, and they're like, yeah, that's talking about the expansion of the spiritual kingdom alongside of the common kingdom and the natural kingdom, and, and, and they'll basically be in opposition forever, and neither will have dominion. It's nonsense. Wait a second. Well, it's certainly, Sorry, and that's what is. I would say. It's certainly not plain reading of the text. No. And I think that it it helps you not to hit either of those ditches because there's wooden literalism, there's over spiritualism, and we don't want to be in either of those. We want to read the scriptures the way the apostles did. We want to read the, the scriptures the way the apostles did. So yeah. that's that's what I would say. What what was most convincing to me? I was reading Sam Storm's book, a case uh, Kingdom, Kingdom Come, Come, a case for all millennialism. And he overshot his target. He he convinced me so much of partial preterism, and he gave such uh, a charitable argument. Uh, I mean, presentation. Yeah, presentation. He definitely steel manned his opponents in in um, premillennialism and in postmillennialism. Yes, that I became utterly convinced of postmillennialism in an all millennialist uh, all millennialist book. Boy, that's a hard word to say. And it's because he he's like, hey, if postmillennialism is right, here are all the relevant passages. <laughs> yeah. And it is You're pages. like, I actually agree with that. It was like, like pages. four pages. I'm like, I love those pages. Those, those pages are, are right. Inerrant. And those verses are great. And then he gave three critiques and and they were I, lame. He it was actually self defeating in his book because he had just set up why those aren't actually objections. Yeah. So Sam Storms in a book trying to convince me of all millennialism convinced me of post millennialism, wow. and so the sticking point I would just good listener that is not post mill I am speaking to you at this moment take a look at the relevant passages that a post millennialist would cite and say examine them. What does That's this it. mean? What no is this? Man. What does this mean? I think you will be. Absolutely astounded. And add to that, every passage that comes to mind is an objection, like the way is narrow and few will find it. Go read what postmillennialists say about those passages. Yeah, that, Their best answers. That's the other thing, and that's why I was saying no straw manning. Yeah. So, um, you know, something like Second Peter 3, do, mm-hmm. you know, you know what, what's the answer? Well, you know, 
somebody asked me that question. I type it in. A few people I know, I ask Gary Demar. You get an answer. It's like, okay, there is an answer. But then you look at like what the Dispies say we say, and it's not the it's same not thing. It's not that, no. What do no. they say? I, I don't remember exactly on that one. I know that the post mill to like Second Peter 3 is what well, we're talking about the fall of uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's using yeah. similar language to what the Old Testament prophets use for the destruction of Assyria. Yeah, and you can example. check out, like, Peter Lightheart's got a commentary on it. Uh, Gary DeMar has some great stuff on American Vision on that. And, and what you'll find, like, this this, this really helped me because I was so steeped in dispensationalism, and I was taught that dispensationalists love the Bible, and they just let the Bible talk, and that these other folks all spiritualize the Bible. And, and I found some of that to be true about certain amillennialist interpretations. But man, postmillennial theologians bleed Bibline, you know, like the Spurgeon quote. Yeah. They bleed Bibline. When you talk to a James Jordan or a Gary DeMar or a Kenneth Gentry or a Douglas Wilson about these things, they are rattling off passages like a machine gun. I mean, they're just like, well, it's like this psalm and this and this biblical theological connection, this historical theological connection, and this New Testament interpretation of this psalm. And then, oh, did you see the way that this was quoted by Hosea? And it's like they deeply love and, and appreciate the tapestry of the Bible as yeah. a whole work. And even to Baptists, if you don't want to listen to any of those guys, you can look at uh, Jeff Durbin. He yeah, has some good absolutely. videos on the YouTubes if you're curious yeah. about that. Yeah, so that's, that's very Baptist good. has to say. And so, in conclusion... I think that when what we're posing is that the pessimistic view of the church and of Christ's reign is not only unhelpful, but is also incorrect, and it's actually doing harm. So the way forward is to actually believe the scriptures, Jesus' rule and reign will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And next time, I'm going to drop a teaser for our next episode, we have a very special guest that is going to be talking specifically about post-millennialism. And so that's going to be with you, Eric. Man, I can't wait to figure out who this is. Yeah, woof. Oh, man, it's going to be big. Are we going to say, or are we going to... It, it rhymes... Chocolate Fox? Wait. <laughs> it, yeah. Chocolate Knox! Wait, oh! No. Yeah! No way. The man, the myth, the legend. Go baptize your kids if you have children. David Shannon, that's right. We're going to be talking with uh, David Shannon about post-mill theology. Of course, he spent a lot of time under some really great teachers, Doug Wilson... Uh, around Toby Sumter and uh, and Uncle Gary, Uncle yeah, Gary right. Demar, I think that's going to be exciting. He knows a ton about it. Really exciting guest. So everybody, thanks for listening into this episode of the Kings Hall podcast. We are so glad that you've given us this time and entrusted it to us. We hope it's been helpful. We would encourage you to head over to kingshall.org uh, to check out some of the ways that you can support the show. You can become a patron and gain access to a weekly patron-exclusive show called After Hours. We record after every main episode. We have some great merch that will identify you as um, not just a Christian, but the type of Christian who uh, would wear a shirt wherein a uh, man named Boniface is chopping down a tree that is rainbow-colored, and that sort of thing. So you can head there. And we do want to thank uh, our sponsor for this episode, Reformation Heritage Books, for the ways that they've supported the show and invite you to go check out their website uh, that's in the description and uh, pick up some great resources there to catechize your kids and disciple your family, learn biblical theology, historical theology. Man, they've got a great library over there. I think it's heritagebooks.com, but if I'm wrong about that, it's in the description. So thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time in the King's Hall.